Thanks, Matt. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be speaking to you this morning. We're going to be continuing in our Joseph series, as Matt said, in, in the book of Genesis. And last week we were in chapter 46, so this week we'll be in chapter 47. I just wanted to start by kind of recapping what we've heard so far um, last week. And I'll be reading from a moment in verse 7, which will appear on the screen for you. But last week we had Jacob receiving a dream from God. And he then eventually decided to go to Egypt and, and finally meet his son, Joseph, who had been separated from for, for many years. So it ended with this uh, great celebration of that meeting. And then chapter 47 begins with um, something which I'm not going to read out, where the brothers, Joseph's brothers, meet Pharaoh for the first time. And then we'll pick up the story as Jacob himself meets Pharaoh in chapter 47, verse 7. So I'll just read it out for you now. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father, and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are a hundred and thirty years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of my life of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh, and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that all the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your lives? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph. And Joseph gave them food in exchange for their horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them, from, the end of, from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have a fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. 
Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favour in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly with me and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. And this is um, quite a, a busy chapter. There seems to be a, a lot going on. And I think there, there appear to be kind of three distinct sections. We've got the encounter of Jacob and Pharaoh at the very beginning where Jacob blesses Pharaoh. And then we've got the account of the famine and Joseph's response to the famine kind of in the middle section. And then in the last scene, we see Jacob and Joseph as, as Jacob nears the end of his life and the promise that Joseph makes to Jacob. And while they are, are quite distinct, um, different passages within the, within the same chapter, there, there's definitely a consistent theme that I'd like to draw out for you this morning. As we begin the chapter with the first in, encounter of, of Pharaoh and Jacob, we see the meeting of two great nations. We've got Pharaoh, who is the head of Egypt, the king of the economic superpower of the day. And then there's Joseph, who is known as Israel. His, his family at this point are the very humble beginnings, just the 70 people we heard coming to Egypt last week, are the humble beginnings of God's chosen people, God's chosen nation. And so this is, if you like, uh, an early world leaders conference, a G2 summit, if you will. There seems to be a mutual respect between these two men. Uh, that of equals. And if we compare it to the encounter that Joseph's brothers have with Pharaoh at the beginning of the chapter that I didn't read out, they constantly refer to themselves as your servants, as Pharaoh's servants, as somehow being lesser than Pharaoh. But there's none of that in this encounter between Jacob and Pharaoh. There's a, there's a, a respect there. And we see that Pharaoh inquires of Jacob's age. In, in both cultures at this time, age was a sign of defined favour and, and great wisdom. And so Joseph's age, uh, sorry, Jacob's age actually demands the respect from, Joseph, uh, from Pharaoh. Getting all my names confused. Jacob blesses Pharaoh twice, uh, right at the beginning and as he leaves. This is interesting because there is a, a leader of a pagan nation, um, a people and a king who do not know God. Yet God chooses to bless them through his servant Jacob. And in fact, Jacob is the man who, earlier on in Genesis, cheats his own brother out of his birthright, out of his blessing, and is now the source of blessing. And we see that this blessing upon Egypt, upon Pharaoh, is fulfilled later on in the chapter. And we read that the family, Jacob and, and Joseph and their family, settle in the land of Ramesses. And just to clear up any confusion, last week we heard they were going to be in Goshen, and then here at the beginning it says Ramesses, and then at the end of the chapter it says Goshen again. These are in fact the same place. I understand that at the time that this happened in Joseph's day, the land was called Goshen, but several hundred years later when this book was written, it was by that point known as Ramesses. It is, if you like, how Bombay is now called Mumbai. Same, same place, different name. And the family in Goshen is fully provided for. 
They're given food to eat. They're, they're fed. They're given possession in the land. This is greater treatment than most immigrants could expect in, in this country, even in this country today. They're, they're given really favorable treatment. And we see that all of this narrative of Joseph, the whole Joseph story up until this point, as far as family is concerned, is leading up to this provision for the family of Joseph, this provision for the nation of Israel that we'll see towards the end of this chapter really prosper during this time. And then the, the chapter moves on to the, the second section, the account of the famine and Joseph's response to that. And, and given what's going on here and given the language that's used, this, um, I read from the ESV, it doesn't actually use the word slavery, but other translations do use the word slavery. I think it would be remiss of me not to, to pause and reflect on that and, and give it some context and answer some, some questions that you might have. And so I think it's worth starting by saying that Joseph progresses, starting with um, selling them food and, and exchanging that for money as you would normally. And then when that runs out, he trades livestock and possession. And then finally, the people come to him a third time. And as a last resort, he agrees to purchase them and their land um, and implements a policy where actually it kind of looks a lot like leasing the land. The people of Egypt get to stay on the land that they've been living on. They don't own it anymore, but they continue to live there. They continue to work it. And they're given food and they're given seed to grow. And, and the condition is that they give 20% of their harvest back to Pharaoh, back to the king. And so this seems to be quite a, a fair and proportional system and actually quite a modern tax system that's ahead of its time, really. We see that it stays in place for hundreds of years until this book is written. And, and the 20% rate, as I'm sure you're aware, is the, the basic tax rate in this country at this time. So it seems to be a, a pretty good system. And actually, it allows the people of Egypt to survive uh, a famine that would have otherwise killed them. And we can see this, therefore, as an act of benevolent stewardship on behalf of Joseph. He, he provides for the country. He ensures that the land continues to, to be farmed. And he ensures that the people survive. His God-given purpose in this time is to provide for Egypt and to rescue the people from the famine. And we see that the people of Egypt actually recognize that. Um, in, in verse 25, we see that they said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord. We will be servants to Pharaoh. They recognize in their coming to Joseph that they've turned to him to seek salvation and actually they have received and they are grateful for that. So this is certainly not what we might first think of when we hear the word slavery. It's certainly um, not comparable to, to what we've seen in, in recent centuries. And let me just be really clear that the, the slavery that we have seen in, in recent centuries and, and sadly still happens today in, in, in perhaps hidden and not as prevalent as it was, but certainly still there. That, that slavery is cruel, it is evil and it is inexcusable. It has no place in our world. And we as Christians need to speak out and, and seek justice. We, we see even in recent weeks the, the knock-on effects, the repercussions of institutionalized slavery are still here today. We still see an injustice and an oppression of people today in our country and in Western society. And we as Christians are called 
to, to love one another and to love everyone. And our God is a God of freedom. He's a God of um, justice. He's a God of security for all people, regardless of who you are or where you've come from. He's not a God of cruelty or bondage. And it says in the Bible that all people are made in the image of God. And so we as God's church need to love people um, and we need to love our neighbour as we love ourselves because all people are made in his image. And so, yeah, I would just close this, this point by just saying that we need to, to speak out and we may, need to make a stand and we need to live out these two truths that we love everyone regardless of who they are and that we are for freedom and, and not for, for bondage. Returning to the rest of the passage, we see that the account of the famine starts by outlining the severity, and then we see that Joseph kind of begins this collection of all of the money. He sells food, and the, the people are so desperate that all of the money of Egypt and of, the, and, and of Canaan, every last penny is brought to Joseph. And we see that he doesn't keep anything for himself. He doesn't, you know, um, take a cut for himself. This is not a corrupt politician in play. But all of the money is gathered up in Pharaoh's house in the palace where it belongs. And that money is then presumably used to, to fund other things. And we also see that the land that Joseph purchases is also belonging to Pharaoh. He doesn't get his own estate. This is the king's land. And throughout the passage, we get this image of Joseph who's been put in position for this purpose, to rescue the people of Egypt, but also to, by extension, rescue the people of Israel. He ensures that the people have enough to eat through the system that I outlined earlier, leasing the land and, and, and taxing the harvest. And the, the culmination of Joseph's whole story, really, his, his whole life, right from the beginning of chapter 37, where we picked it up, is, is leading up to this point where he is the saviour of people. He arrives in this land of Egypt in chains, and he spends time serving in uh, Potiphar's household. He spends some time in prison, and eventually, after many years, he's set free and rises into this position of power that we see him in now. And he's there in this position to help and to serve and to save. And I think this is illustrated really well in Genesis chapter 45, which we heard a few weeks ago. In, in verse 5 of that chapter where Joseph is talking to his brothers, he says, Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you saw me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. And again, we see the response of the Egyptians kind of mirroring that in this chapter in verse 25, where they say, You have saved our lives. So Joseph serves God faithfully through this time, and he fulfills the purposes that God has given him in this land of Egypt. He also serves the king faithfully too. He ensures that the nation survives. He ensures that the land is worked. He ensures that the people get through this. And he introduces policy that's actually beneficial to the king as well as the people. And, and the king is enriched through this. And we can see that Pharaoh, as, as well, has responded to a dream from God. He received a dream that warned him of this, and he responds to that, and he trusts God, and he trusts God's servant that he has sent to, to take care of the land and, and his nation. And because of this trust and responsiveness that Pharaoh has, because of um, his responsiveness to God speaking, he and his people are saved, and he himself 
is enriched. And as a direct result of the trust that he has, but also is as a fulfillment of the blessing from Jacob, Egypt survives and, and continues to be um, a great superpower of the time. I'm reminded of Genesis chapter 12, where um, right at the beginning of that chapter, Abraham receives a promise from God. And perhaps it's one you've heard before, where God says, I will make you into a great nation. And we'll, we'll get to that in just a moment. But in that same promise, God actually says a couple of other things. He says that you will be a blessing, talking about Israel. And he also says that all the families of the earth will be blessed. And the implication is through you. So through Israel, all of the families, all of the people of the earth shall be blessed. And we see that Joseph is a part of this family of Israel. And in this passage, he begins to fill that promise. He serves Pharaoh and the people of Egypt and is a blessing to them. And he ensures that they survive through the careful stewardship that he has in this terrible famine and, and, and this crisis that he finds himself in. And then we, and we see also the, the first half of the promise um, that Israel begins to become that great nation. The 70 or so people that we heard arriving in Egypt last week are growing and flourishing and increasing greatly into hundreds of thousands that we see in, at the beginning of Exodus. And they fill the land of Goshen, we read. And they, they appear to be exempt from the taxation policy as well. They're given possession in the land and they're given food. So they don't need to, to sell their land or, or to um, be under this taxation system. They seem to be the only group, aside from the priests, who are completely outside of that. Again, really, really favourable treatment for foreigners in the land of Egypt. And as Jacob nears the end of his life, you know, we read that he spent 17 years in Egypt. Uh, he calls in Joseph and his this whole scene really is a little bit strange. First of all, his, his tone with Joseph is quite deferential, it's submissive. He uses a phrase, if I have found favour, that is often found in the Bible when people are talking to God or to people in the high places who are perhaps greater than them. So it's strange for a father to be talking to his son in this way. It kind of outlines the position that Jacob is in at the end of his life as a position of weakness but also uh, Joseph's position as second in all of Egypt, as a, a position of real power. And so Jacob asks for a favour, and this is a similar scene to what we see again earlier on in Genesis when Abraham is speaking to his servant, and he sends his servant out to find a wife for his son Isaac. And he, they, they go through a similar, similar ritual. They and the servant puts his hand on the thigh of Abraham, just as we see with Joseph and Jacob here. And I think we can, we can be honest here, this is just a little bit weird. Now, what, what is this about? I've, I've made loads of promises to my dad growing up, uh, and not once can I recall having to put my hand under his thigh. There only seem to be a couple of instances of it in, in the Bible, and so I did some reading to try and figure out what was going on here, and to be honest with you, I was a little bit disappointed. No one seems to be able to agree on, on what this means, perhaps because it's only a, a couple of instances mentioned. Some people say that it is simply a sign of submission to, to the other, um, but not everyone agrees on that. And there's other theories that I'll let you read and, and find out for yourself. But 
I think for today we can think of this as a, a very early, rather strange version of a pinky promise. You know, when, when you're growing up, a pinky promise is a promise that can't be broken. And so that's what we see going on here. Joseph makes this promise to his father. And, and in fact, we see later on in Genesis that he does fulfill this promise. He goes and buries Jacob in the land of Canaan with his fathers. I think it's also interesting that Jacob wants to return to Canaan. You know, his, the, it is the land of promise, yes, he wants to be buried with his fathers and, and is committed to the faith of his fathers. But it's, he's, he's in a time of plenty. He's, his family is thriving, they're increasing in number. We saw Jacob right at the beginning of this chapter being a little bit miserable. He's talking about the years of his life being evil. Surely now things seem to be coming good for him. Surely he'd want to stay in the land of Egypt. But no, as I said, he's committed to the faith of his fathers and, and Joseph is loyal to his father and agrees to return Jacob to Canaan when he dies. As I said at the beginning, there are kind of three distinct sections to this chapter. But what stands out throughout all of them is Joseph's consistent faithfulness. Pharaoh has entrusted Joseph with Egypt, with the people, with the land, during a time of crisis. And he serves Pharaoh faithfully, and he enriches the king. We see that God has put him in Egypt and with a God-given purpose to, to save Egypt. The whole reason he's here is to save people and to preserve life, as we read earlier. This is what his whole life has led up to, and he is faithful to God's call. And in this last scene, we see his faithfulness to his father, to, to Jacob, as he nears the end of his life, with his promise to return him to the land of promise on his death to be buried with his fathers. And as I said, towards the end of the chapter, when Jacob does die, we see this carried out. We see the pieces, therefore, coming together in this chapter. They've been there throughout Joseph's whole life. That, that faithfulness has been there. But we see Joseph in this chapter really revealed as a servant, as a good steward. Um, he's, he's stewarding the, the land and the resources of Egypt. And he is consistent in his faithfulness to those in authority, to his God, to his father, to his king. And it's interesting to note that Joseph, as I said earlier, is put in this position of power to serve. But actually his, his power comes from serving. His, his God-given purpose and, and God's purpose in the land of Egypt comes about through his faithfulness. God has placed him in Egypt and through his actions, as well as Egypt being blessed, his family is also greatly blessed and increase in number. And just as was promised to Abraham, as I outlined earlier, it was a blessing to other people, to the Egyptians, who survive uh, a deadly famine that they would have otherwise not survived. Because of his stewardship, they, they continue to grow and prosper as well. And he ends up in this foreign pagan land, this, this land that doesn't know God. And as I said, he arrives there in chains. But despite all of that, God uses him to work for his divine purposes. Over the course of the lockdown period, we as a church have been talking a lot about how we hear from God in this time and how we find time to, to do that. And again, I would encourage you to do so, to, to find time to meet with God and, and to talk to him and to hear from him about his purposes for you in this time. And wherever you are now, whether you're in Manchester at the moment or perhaps you've returned home as universities are, are closed or Perhaps you're dialing in from, from somewhere else, perhaps a different country entirely. You're so welcome, so great to have you with us. 
But we believe that God has placed you where you are for a reason. And so think about what, what that reason is in this time and be looking to see how you can faithfully serve his purposes. We heard a little bit earlier on in the meeting about the River Church that's being planted in Newcastle. And in preparing for this message, I've been reminded again of, of Rick and Cheryl, who are the couple leading that church. And just to reiterate a bit of history for you, we as Revelation Church were planted here from uh, a church in Nottingham called Grace Church. And we've been here for, for coming up to two years now. And River Church is due to be planted in Newcastle this coming September by this couple, Rick and Cheryl, and their team. And as I'm sure you can imagine, with all that's going on at the moment, with the crisis that we see in this country with the pandemic, it's going to be a really tough job for them, but they're still planning to go. You know, how buying or, or renting in this time is going to be really difficult in terms of housing. Finding new jobs is, isn't easy. Even meeting physically together in one location isn't outright banned at the moment. They're, they're not allowed to do it. And, and meeting new people, going out flying, trying to build new relationships in the places they are in, it's going to be really, really hard. But we can praise God because it sounds like they still have real faith that God is in this, that this is God's calling on them. And so they are still going to go this summer as soon as they can, um, ready to start in the autumn in whatever way that looks like. And so I commend them and their team to you and, and their faithfulness that they are demonstrating in this time to what God has called them to do in their lives. And they're going to Newcastle to answer this calling and to see that city reached for him. And so we as Revelation Church believe that too, that we are in Manchester, we've been called to Manchester to reach this great city. And whether you were part of the team that came from Nottingham originally, or whether you've joined us since, you're, you're part of this vision, you're part of this calling now to reach the city of Manchester. We want to see people saved. We want to see people come to know Jesus. We want to see broken people encounter God for the first time. We want to see um, the poor and the needy reached in this city. And we find ourselves, just as Joseph did, in a place that really does not know him particularly in this time, but generally too, really does need him. And so just as with Joseph, it's good to be reminded that the power of the church comes through serving. We see the power of the church really at its peak when the church is not about itself, but it is about chasing after God's purposes and serving the people around them in the places where local churches are. And, and so that is our, our calling as a church. How can we faithfully carry that out as individuals and as a, a family of God? How can we a bless, be a blessing to those around us? And if you're not in Manchester, don't worry. You, you don't miss out on this. How can you be a blessing to the people in the place that you're in now? So we've got a, a wonderful example in this chapter of, of Joseph as a, a servant figure, as a man who is consistently faithful. And let us follow that example of consistent faithfulness that we see in this chapter.